Talk Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Your recent Twitter comments have highlighted the role of the International Wheat Executive, which became the international agency for making allied purchasing and supply decisions. Why the interest in the Wheat Executive? This relates to a project that I'm working on with a colleague of mine at Boston University, Rosella Capella Zelensky. We've, for the past few years, have been studying how the Allies during World War I managed the massive supply problem that was associated with fighting the Great War. This was not just a matter of having troops in the battlefield and having weapons to them and having ammunition to them. It was also a matter of feeding them, feeding the civilian population, feeding them wheat, feeding them meat, feeding them sugar, feeding them fats. This is all of this. And the reality is a lot of that was not available at home. A lot of it had to be brought in, especially as the war went on and domestic supplies went down. A lot of these supplies were coming from places like Australia, a little bit from Russia in terms of wheat, who, of course, was also fighting the war. But a big portion was coming from the United States. And so the supply problem that the European allies was were facing was this issue of how do we bring these supplies? How do we purchase them? How do we bring them over? And how do we do this in a way that ensures that the civilians are getting what they need and the troops are getting what they need? Well, for the first couple of years of the war, this was basically left in the hands of each individual ally. So the British and the French, they would try some loose coordination. They'd say, well, we're going to go and buy so much wheat. And the French would say, "Okay, we're going to buy so much wheat. But they weren't doing it as a team, if you will. So they were essentially competing against each other. Same thing with the Italians. They were all competing against each other. Well, this was just driving up prices. You can see this if you go and look at the prices, say, on the Chicago Board of Trade during this time. You can see the prices increasing. This is leading to shortages. This was also leading to inefficiency in terms of the shipping. That It might have been ideal for a British ship to have delivered wheat to France and a French ship to deliver wheat to Italy, but that wasn't what was happening. And so it took about two years, and finally in 1916, late 1916, the situation became dire enough largely because of a very poor harvest globally, especially in the United States, that the shortages were so acute for wheat that the Allies finally came together and said, okay, we've got to fix this. And the idea for fixing it really came from an individual who a lot of people know very well who studies, say, European integration, that's Jean Monnet. He was part of the French delegation at the time, And he came up with, he worked with his associates, British delegates, and also other French delegates to come up with what was called the Wheat Executive. It was so successful that a year later, after the United States entered the war, 
They said this weed executive model seems to be working really well. We should apply it more broadly. And so then that led to the creation of what was called the Allied Maritime Transport Council, AMTC. And that became the entity that supplied the allies throughout the rest of the war on all dimensions. And so the reason why this was brought up on Twitter was really started with something that Rosella had written for Bloomberg. Uh, She had been part of an interview that Bloomberg did where they asked kind of like what lessons could be drawn from the World War experiences to help us think about countering the COVID-19 pandemic today. And the reason why this was a relevant question is because the main example people have been pointing to is, of course, the Spanish flu of 1918. But a point that Rosella made in that interview, and then I echoed on Twitter because it draws from our book, is that the real lesson isn't so much looking at 1918, but looking at this experience from 1916. And seeing how difficult it was, even under an immense crisis, how difficult it was to finally get everybody on board with sharing supplies to counter a crisis and a threat. Today we have more connectivity. We have global corporations. We have international trade associations and so on. Is there not a world of difference between the world of today and that of 1914 or 1916? There's a lot to that claim. There's a lot to say that the world is very different today than it was back in 1914, 15, 16 with, say, global corporations or even the fact that a lot of these countries have had more experience now of cooperating. So it should be easier for them to now cooperate. At the same time, a lot of scholars who study economic globalization, the interconnectivity, economic interconnectivity, a lot of them will point out that the world was pretty interconnected in the lead up to World War One, In fact, some scholars who study what's called the commercial peace, this is the idea that countries that trade with each other don't fight with each other. A lot of them will point to the lead up to World War One, and indeed World War One itself as a great counter argument, counter case, a case that seems to run against this because they say, well, gee, the world was so interconnected at this time. And yet, one of the largest wars in history broke out. Now, why is that? Well, scholars have offered all sorts of reasons for why that might not be the case, why that um, not so much might be the might not be the case that it's a counter argument, but might be the case that, well, yes, it is true that countries were highly connected, but the countries that really started the war weren't as connected, namely, say, Russia and Germany, et cetera. But The fact remains that the world was actually highly integrated at that time economically. And indeed, this is part of the reason why something like what became known as the Spanish flu was able to become a global phenomenon or become a global crisis. Part of that was due to the movement of troops around the world. This was something that we've talked about previously. But the reality is the conditions were there and say in shipping for the movement of people the movement of supplies, and hence the movement of viruses across the globe. And so I think that the, in many ways, the world was very similar um, leading up to World War II, or excuse me, World War I compared to today. And so for that reason, I do think that there are still a lot of valid lessons that we can draw from the Allied experience during that time. You're talking about when governments cooperate on trade. But aren't there circumstances in which they can interfere? For example, you've been talking about the DPA of late. The the DPA is something else that I've been discussing on Twitter uh, over the past few weeks, uh, the Defense Production Act. And this is an act that 
started during the very beginning of the Korean War was signed by President Truman. And what it does is it allows the executive branch to basically mandate that companies produce certain equipment or supplies that are needed for national security. Even when Truman signed it, his initial preference was for companies to still do this voluntarily. And you're seeing that today with the Trump administration, that even though this act has been brought up, the Trump administration has been leaning towards hoping that corporations will do this voluntarily, and not solely without, say, discussions with the federal government. And the latest evidence shows that that's indeed what's happening is that a lot of corporations are starting to begin ramping up production of masks, gloves, ventilators, and doing so without having to invoke this act. Now, you could make the argument that the very presence of the act is what's enabling this to happen, that they're they're pursuing this option not just because – I should say corporations are pursuing this production not just because it's, quote, the right thing to do or not just because they think they can sell a lot of this equipment, but also because they know that if they don't, um, the federal government could actually compel them to do it. But that's that's kind of the context, I think, for thinking about why corporations, both during World War One in the Korean War era and today, anytime during these crises that you see corporations kind of stepping up and producing. Sometimes it's due to direct government involvement. That was the case of World War One. The government literally, by the time the U.S. entered the war, the government just basically shut down the private market for wheat and started purchasing the wheat itself. To during the Korean War with the enacting of the DPA, to even today during a crisis where you see corporations stepping up, sometimes by direct government intervention, sometimes by, say, quote, government encouragement to start ramping up production. Much of what you're talking about is to do with war. A pandemic is not a war. A lot of the language we are hearing now is wartime language. How does that translate into pandemic language? Obviously, there are huge differences between fighting a war where you have, say, a well-defined threat that you can actually observe and see versus trying to counter a pandemic where in many ways, as people have been saying, that the threat is more hidden. It's uncertain about where it's coming from, if it's even present at certain times. And so that makes a huge difference in terms of how governments respond to this, how populations respond to it. Having said that, I do think that there are some notable similarities and there's some notable lessons to be gained. One of the big lessons is if you look at not just any war, we're not talking about, say, quote, smaller wars. We're talking about wars that in many ways were considered cataclysmic, um, especially for the countries who were directly uh, on whose territory the fighting was happening, say France, for instance. These were wars that people actually did view as potentially bringing about the end of their state, even the end of their civilization, the end of their societies. I mean, these were viewed as cataclysmic events. They were devastating events in terms of the number of people killed. And they were also events that required societies as a whole to mobilize for a common effort. And those things, those fears and that mobilization of common effort, I think is something you're seeing with the pandemic today. You're seeing entire societies, entire countries closing down their economies, sheltering in place, quarantining, 
And that's a nationwide effort. And in many ways, that's analogous to, say, the massive rationing efforts that you saw during the World Wars. The other analogy is, at the end of the day, we're turning to production just like we did with World War One, just like countries did with World War Two. That is FDR referred to it as the arsenal of democracy, right? Or actually that was FDR adopted that term. It was actually, I think, John Monet who came up with the phrase uh, arsenal of democracy. But it was the idea that to win this war, we have to produce. We have to produce the weapons. We have to produce the food. In the same way, we know that to be able to counter this pandemic, it's not just going to require a society-wide mobilization in terms of sheltering in place. It's also going to require massive production of ventilators, masks, gloves, tests, vaccines, etc. And so this, in that way, you see a lot of similarities between the massive mobilization that was required for these major wars and the massive mobilization that you're seeing today. A problem then becomes politicians and policy advisors wanting rapid results and the need to announce something new. And on the other hand, we have the policy wonks and the people working behind the scenes more interested in building. How do you reconcile those opposing aims? This is an intriguing question. And the reason why is because I actually think this is part of what contributes to the competition between countries is the desire for a quick fix, a desire to protect your population versus maybe taking on a more cooperative effort that could actually have lasting impact and may even be the better ultimate response. And so I think that this is exactly your question is exactly pointing to this tension where you see, say, for example, President Trump or you see President Xi in China, both making declarations about how their countries, their individual countries are handling this crisis. Now, the media has pointed out that in both cases, these are tend to be overblown claims. And you've even seen where the Trump administration has gradually um, heightened and viewed the crisis more seriously than they did originally. But nevertheless, you see this across countries where there's a desire to try to show that, look, the government is responding. We're taking these efforts. We're doing this. We're we're making these. Um, we're taking these actions. But it leads to governments kind of focusing on what actions they can take. And they're kind of like, you know, international cooperation can wait till later. Me helping out Italy, that can wait till later. Me helping out China, that can wait till later because I've got to solve this problem for my own country right now. And so I think that's where you're really, I think that desire for a quick fix, but also that desire to show that I'm protecting you. I think those are two things that do lead to problems and do make it difficult to be able to achieve cooperative outcomes, even if those cooperative outcomes are ultimately the better solution, if you will. The problem for politicians from a democracy is that they're thinking to themselves, I'm going to be facing an election after this and everything I do now will have an effect on that election outcome. And even if you're a politician from a non-democratic country, say an authoritarian state, you know, You'd be saying to yourself, everything I do now will determine whether I remain in authority. Meanwhile, local authorities, especially health authorities, are saying, we don't really care about any of that. We just want to save people's lives. 
that tension between national government and local government just seems such a wide gap at the moment. Oh, absolutely. I think you have a lot of different competing interests, tensions here. You have on the one hand, as you said, kind of the experts, policy experts, health policy experts who are pointing to best solutions and and quite honestly, even saying things like, well, we might have to keep shelter in place or keep social distancing going for a few months. And on the other hand, you have politicians saying, well, a few months, that could undermine my election prospects. This really points to an idea that's common in economics and in political science called time and consistency problems. And what the time and consistency problem is, is it can it can take a couple forms. The one form of it is politicians have incentives to take actions that in the short run might be very beneficial to them. It may actually make the population feel better. A uh, classic example of this is printing money, right? Printing money in the short run can put money in people's pockets, make people feel better, make people feel good about the economy, and that could help that politician get elected. But the long-term consequence of that could be inflation. And it could even be very high inflation, hyperinflation potentially if it gets out of control. So that's a classic example of the time and consistency problem. On the other hand, another way to think about the time and consistency problem is not so much that you take an action now that has benefit that's beneficial, but has these dire long-term consequences, you could also take an action now that prevents a long-term solution. And I think that's even more so what we're seeing with the pandemic is we're seeing politicians taking actions now that kind of impede that long-term solution that would be fostered by more cooperation. Or another way to even think about to make it even, to take it even out of the international context, that was the Trump administration's initial incentive to kind of downplay the crisis. And I, I would say this wasn't unique to the Trump administration. There were other governments who were had an incentive to kind of say, no, this isn't as bad. I mean, you saw this with the British government, even saw this with the Chinese government, saying this isn't as bad. Why? Because they have incentives to kind of keep people calm, let people know they're under control. However, that could lead to these long-term consequences, which is that by the time you do start taking it seriously, it's too late. 